Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. A number of years ago, Christian Smith, along with other researchers with a national study of youth and religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers in particular. Uh, They surveyed a very broad spectrum of young people, uh, not just there at the University of North Carolina, but elsewhere throughout the country as well. And they began to sort of draw a picture of what Americans believe. Uh, This actually happened just over a decade ago, and so the study is a little bit uh, dated. However, that mindset that they found continues to develop and grow. They actually, as they surveyed the participants, they actually put together a couple of words that described the religious beliefs that young people had at that time and from what researchers are gathering continue to have now and pretty much permeates our culture. Whatever your age is, whatever your mindset is, however old you are, pretty much permeates our culture. I'm not going to write the words all down fully because they're too long, but they basically came up with this idea of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Those were the words that they used to sort of describe and encapsulate the responses that they had of sort of spiritual temperature of how modern day people feel about God and how they interrelate with him. I just kind of give you five points of what that looks like. Number one, there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. No real problem with that, but that's sort of number one as to what those who are sort of, sort of what describes those who adhere to moralistic therapeutic deism. Not that they know that language, but these are some of their beliefs. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So again, number one, God created us. Some kind of design in our world. He watches over human life. And then secondly, God wants us to be nice, fair, and good to each other as the Bible and other world religions teach. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's kind of where the therapeutic comes in. As we're nice to one another, as we're good, God's desire is for us to be happy and pleased with ourselves, and feel good about ourselves and have a good self-esteem and self-outlook about who we are. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. It's kind of the deism part. That God is there, but he's not particularly involved in your life. Unless you have a problem, unless you come across something you can't quite overcome yourself, then God's involved, then call on him, and he'll be there to have your back to solve the problem that you may be having. And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Those are the five things that sort of describe moralistic therapeutic deism. Again, most the average person wouldn't have any idea of that language, 
But that sort of summarizes, those five points summarize how our modern day culture views God. In one sense, that can be summed up by the exact cliche that we're looking at this morning. God helps those who help themselves. If you kind of wanted to put together a cliche that sort of described moralistic therapeutic deism, it probably would be God helps those who help themselves. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to have a good outlook on ourselves. He wants us to be nice, fair, kind, and good to one another. He's generally kind of distant, but if you have a problem, he's got your back. And his job description is generally to make you happy. And when you die, everything's going to turn out fine if you've kind of lived a life that's been good, nice, and kind-hearted to others. I think a cliche to describe that would be, God helps those who help themselves. Now, last couple of Sundays ago, we looked at the cliche of working out our salvation, not working for it, but working out the implications of it. This morning, we're going to kind of look at the other side of that. Does God really help those who help themselves? Is is that what scripture is about describing? Is that the God we worship? Is this how we really interrelate with God? Well, I'm going to read some verses to you from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, That would be great. We really highly encourage you, by the way, to bring your Bibles to church. Certainly grab one in the chair in front of you. Uh, But really encourage you to bring your own and write some notes, make some highlights, underline some verses. uh, Just have your Bible open in front of you. It's just a really helpful thing to, to dive in. Here's what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 18, he's, he's, this has done a couple of miracles. Uh, Luke's gospel is about Luke helping people, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, to understand the identity of Jesus and who he is. And, and here's what Luke records for us about one of the things that Jesus does in his life. Luke says this, To some who are confident in their own righteousness... And look down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. Let me just take a small time out and quick break there. Isn't it interesting that Luke says this? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Gosh, it's good we don't have that problem anymore, right? Like, like it's, it's good that was just an ancient problem. You know, we're sophisticated, we're modern day, those ancients, they had their challenges, they had their problems. You know, we've outgrown, we've evolved, we've kind of moved past. Like, it's so great that in our modern day, nobody looks down on one another as they did in ancient times. Eh, kind of not so much, right? Not so much. It says, Jesus told this parable. Now, the reason that Jesus told parables, parables were made up stories that Jesus told that drove home a point that would otherwise be difficult to see. You know, I mentioned, often mentioned before I pray, when, when we look into God's word, I say, God, may your Holy Spirit kind of help us to see things we otherwise would not see. But why do we pray that together as a congregation almost literally before every time we open God's word? Why do we do that? Because we know that we are by nature self-defensive. 
We know that we have a shell to kind of protect ourselves, that we kind of see things our way and we don't really want anything penetrating that perspective. Well, Jesus actually told parables and the kind of reason he told them was this. He, he would basically get people nodding along in agreement with the story and then the story would end and you'd suddenly find yourself in the story in a way that you would not have expected. You're like, yeah, that's right, Jesus. Great story. Awesome. And there's like, ooh, my gosh. And once you're kind of agreeing with all the way along, suddenly at the end, you find that you're in the story yourself. And so Jesus told parables. Uh, They were simply made up stories that he told to kind of illustrate truth and to help people get a picture if their eyes were willing to be open, help them to get a picture of the way spiritual reality really worked, because often we don't see spiritual reality very clearly. And so Jesus is simply telling the story. It's not, again, the historical accounts of Jesus are absolutely true, but Jesus is simply making up the story as a great teacher often does. We often tell illustrations or or have hypothetical stories to help people see points. We actually get that from the person of Jesus, who was a fantastic teacher, and this is what he did. So here's the story that Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in our modern day, those categories aren't overly helpful to us. In the ancient times when Jesus told this story, those two categories of people told an enormous amount. The Pharisees were deeply revered. They were looked up to. They were highly respected. I mean, if you were a Pharisee, you were at the top of the game. If you were the Pharisee, you were just seen as being super spiritual. Uh, Billy Graham was an incredibly authentic person. He was was for real. Uh, Billy Graham was an authentic person. But in one sense, the way that we kind of revere someone like that, and kind of appropriately so, again, because he was an authentic spiritual leader, in the ancient times, it would view their religious leaders called Pharisees, all of them like that. And then the tax collector, that was sort of on the other end of the spectrum. Tax collectors were seen as dishonest. Tax collectors were aligned with the Roman government. Remember, the Roman government was was, uh, ruling over Israel. And so those who were tax collectors were basically seen as sellouts to the Roman government. They would collect taxes from the Jewish people. Uh, the way they would actually get their money as tax collectors would be to add on to what Rome was naturally collecting for taxes. And so they really weren't even paid just for their work. The way that they got paid was literally simply increasing the tax burden that Rome was putting on people, and they would take the, the rest for themselves. And so over you here, you have the revered, the respected. And over here, you have a class of people who are viewed as sort of the the scum of the earth, the traitors, those who sold out, those who were dishonest. That's how Jesus' story begins. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Listen to his prayer. Jesus, again, Jesus is telling us a story. He's making up this prayer. This guy prayed to make a point. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Hear the condescension in that? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast 
twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Jesus goes on, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See these two different prayers? Jesus says, the Pharisee prays, God, I'm so thankful. I'm not like everybody else. I'm so thankful, particularly that I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not a robber. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an evildoer. I pray. I fast. I give generously. I do all of that. God, thank you that I'm so righteous. Thank you that I'm so moralistic that I'm nice, that I'm good, that I'm kind, that I'm generous to others. Thank you for that. The tax collector says, God, I need your mercy because I recognize I fall far short of your glorious plan for my life. Verse 14, I tell you, that this man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Just a couple of things we're going to look at this morning. Kind of three things we're going to, going to work our way through. Number one is this. The problem we all have the problem we all have. What's the problem that we all have? You know, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? That the condescension that existed 2,000 years ago when Jesus taught this and the way that society operated then is essentially the same thing that we have in our modern society. Isn't that interesting? I mean, with all of the advancements, with all the things that have changed in 2,000 years, with all the way that human beings, you might have said, have grown in education, sophistication, whatever you want to call it, isn't it fascinating that the fundamental, the core problem of establishing yourself and looking down on others who don't quite measure up to who you are, isn't it fascinating that that's been around for 2,000 years plus? And also we know that it was around since the beginning of time. In fact, the problem we have is that it's been around since the Garden of Eden. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve choose to sort of follow after their own path. They choose the path of autonomy. And how do Adam and Eve then relate to one another and to God? Adam condescendingly says, God, it's this woman that you gave me. She's the problem. See the, hear the condescension there? She's the issue. I'm superior to her. She didn't have the insight to see what's happening. She led me wrongly. She's the issue. Adam establishes, what does he establish? He establishes his own righteousness, right? You know, sometimes when we talk about that word righteousness, it sounds like super spiritual and dusty maybe. And it sounds sort of like it's, it's on a kind of like a bookshelf in this vast theological library. It's not that way at all. In fact, since that time, for thousands of years, that's literally what every single human being does. We try to establish our righteousness. 
The problem we have is that we sense that we fall short. We, we kind of smell that. It's in the air of our being. It's the air that we breathe. It's in our soul. Remember saying this a few months ago, I forget what message series it was. Your body has never been in the Garden of Eden. Your body has never been there, but your soul has the memory of perfection and harmony. Your soul and spirit knows that something's not right. Your body was never in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell. You were never there. But your soul and spirit whispers every day that something is wrong. Your soul and spirit whispers every day that you need to be validated. Every single day, your soul and spirit whispers to you that something is wrong. And therefore, you have to validate yourself and you need someone or others or yourself to declare to you, you are righteous. It's funny, Tim Keller says this. <laughs> this will make a lot of sense. He says there's two seemingly contradictory currents in our society. And this will make sense to you. Just kind of see if this is not an appropriate commentary on our culture. There's two commonly contradictory currents in our society. One is, there's a denunciation of all claims of absolute truth, right? So we do. There's a denunciation. We denounce the fact that there's absolute truth. We say absolutely for sure there's no absolute truth. Secondly, at the same time, there's also a fanaticism in which one person or group is absolutely right. Nothing is ambiguous and divergent views should be destroyed. That's right. Well, that's our modern culture. Number one, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Number two, I'm absolutely right. And if you disagree, your truth should absolutely be destroyed. Why, why, why is that the problem that we have? It's precisely because we still try to validate ourselves. We need someone saying, you are righteous. You are right. You measure up. That's exactly what the Pharisee was doing, right? I measure up. I'm not like the rest. I fast. I pray. I give. I'm a step above. Secondly, there's a problem we all feel. Secondly, there's a solution we all try. There's a problem we all have, and there's solutions that we all try. Uh, this week I was watching a video, and uh, there's a pastor from California sharing his name with Jeremy Treat. And he was talking about sitting in a coffee shop in California, I think it was Los Angeles. And he was, his table was close enough to a partnering table that he could hear the two ladies sharing at the nearby table. And first there was, you know, just a lot of small talk and catching up with one another. And then eventually it actually turned to prayer and he was encouraged. Wow, they're talking about prayer. They're talking about like talking to God. And then all of a sudden he heard one of the ladies as they were talking about prayer saying, oh no, I forgot my crystals. 
And suddenly he realized that the prayer that he was thinking about, of talking to the creator God in heaven in the name of Jesus, that's not what she was referring to. She was referring to this connection with God through crystals. Here's the deal. We live in a culture where people's validation often is no longer necessarily connected to religion. Sometimes it is as as a lady praying to crystals. But oftentimes, people think, well, maybe our culture is becoming less religious, less connected to God. Here's what Jeremy Treat said. He said, in a secular society, our longing for God doesn't disappear. It reappears as something else. So we still have the problem. It, the only thing that has really changed a little bit in our modern day culture is that the solutions people try aren't quite as religiously based as they once were. But make no mistake about it, we still try solutions right? Our longing for God doesn't disappear. The problem doesn't disappear. It simply reappears as something else. How does it reappear in our culture? Well, it can kind of appear sometimes maybe almost as a a religious obsession with sports. Jeremy Treat points that out. It can appear as just absolute devotion to my sexual identity or behaviors. That's how it appears. It can appear as politics, where politics becomes very tribalistic, and it becomes a means of self-validation. It can be a host of things. He actually, Jeremy uh, Tree actually mentions one particular religious things. He mentions the rise of witchcraft in our world as, as a means for people to get power. That they, the problem are still here, but the solutions are both secular as well as spiritual. And he mentions the increase of witchcraft as sort of one of the spiritual solutions that people try. He says in 1990, there were about 8,000 self-identified Wiccans in America. In 2001, there were 134,000 self-identified Wiccans. In 2014, there were 1 million self-identified Wiccans. Today, there's 1.5 million Wiccans in our country, which is actually more than all mainline Presbyterians. Interesting, isn't it? See, the fact of the matter is, we still have the problem, and maybe our culture is drifting from the solutions necessarily being religious, but we still try solutions. We still try for things that maybe help God to help us. It's exactly what the Pharisee was doing. Jeremy Treat also mentions just some ways that maybe this flows into our our modern day life. He he mentions the fact that, you know, I think probably Hunterdon County is generally a healthy place and, and, um, we kind of pay attention, especially in this kind of region, this northwestern region of New Jersey, we kind of pay attention to our diets and what we eat and all that kind of thing. And he mentions just, just kind of look, and all that is perfectly fine, but he says just kind of look at sometimes the, the moralistic language that's applied to that. 
that we often try to cleanse our bodies. Anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. We should drink lots of water to flush, flush our bodies and to cleanse our bodies. He talks about being more conscientious of the purity of food that we put into our bodies than the purity of what we put into our soul. Why do we still use lots of purity and cleansing language? Because we still know that we have a problem. There's something about purity and cleansing, even if that's our bodies, that, it, that is attractive to us. It speaks of possibly serving a larger problem that we have. The problems we have, the solutions we try, and lastly, the Savior we need. See, the point of the Bible is that, yes, we all have a problem. And the point of the Bible is there really is no way that you can help yourself. Well, again, as we said a couple of weeks ago, you can work out the salvation that God has worked in. You can work the implications of that out. But here's the difference. You don't contribute to your salvation. You don't contribute to your right relationship with God. The fact of the matter is we need a savior. Listen to verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, rather than the other, this man rather than the other went home justified. The tax collector said, God, there is no way that I can take a step towards you. I'm not able to help myself. The only thing that I can do is seek your help. I need a savior. Listen to me kind of carefully on this. Sometimes when it comes to scripture and the gospel, trusting in Jesus and receiving him as life, often we can have the mindset of like, eh, I kind of want to like stay a little bit distant from like knowing and believing and trusting in God. Like I want to stay a little bit distant from scripture becoming too fabricated into my being. Because why? Because That'll turn me into a weirdo, right? It's kind of our mindset. Like, it's, it's kind of like the wacko people who kind of become a little bit too religious. It's the wacko people who sort of seem to go over the top with the God thing. And you know what the teaching of Scripture is? A little bit of religion is massively dangerous. You know why? Because a little bit of religion kind of looks like moralistic therapeutic deism. A little bit of religion says like, ah, like I'm pretty good. A little bit of religion will lead to condescension of those around you. A little bit of religion will lead to a superioristic perspective on those around you. A little bit of religion, friends, is unsafe for this world. It's damaging. It will give you a sense of superiority. 
But once you grasp the full gospel, you'll be humbled as this tax collector was. Once you fully grasp, the the tighter you get your arms around the gospel, the tighter you get your grasp around the fact that you need a savior and that there's nothing that you can do to help yourself, but Jesus is the only one who can bring redemption and restoration in your life. The, The more you grasp that, the less condescending you'll be toward others. The more loving and compassionate you'll be. The more you'll be aware of your blindness, the more you'll be aware of even your still uh, failed attempts to bring self-validation into your life. The worst thing that you can do is have a marginal relationship with God because I can guarantee you a marginal relationship with God will look like kind of like moralistic therapeutic deism. It'll look like being condescending to others who don't behave as morally as you. It'll look like being condescending to others who don't quite view other issues as you view them. It'll look like being condescending to others who don't quite make the cut spiritually as well as you do. A little bit of gospel, a little bit of religion is deadly. But once the full gospel that you need a savior, that there's nothing that you can do to help yourself, if that grips your soul, It'll change your life. It'll enable you to be a loving, kind, and gentle person. You'll be off the treadmill of self-validation. You'll be off the treadmill of trying to find solutions. And you'll actually be able to breathe a sigh of relief and a sigh of rest that God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who beat their breast. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. My only hope is in you. I'm going to ask our team to come out, and in just a few minutes, we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Let me just read a couple of verses while they come out. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not after we started helping ourselves, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we're going to close our service by singing this old song. It's probably familiar to many of you. It's going to be new to some of you as well. It's a song simply that says, just as I am. Probably... Again, some of you may know it. And here's the deal. Our team is going to lead us in that. It's going to give you just full freedom to do whatever you'd like. You can sit. You can stand. You can kneel at your chair. We have some cushions up front. If you want to just come up and 
kneel at the front. If you want to sing with us, if you just want to listen, if you want to pray, feel absolutely free to do that. And friends, this song is not just about a first-time commitment to Jesus. This song is about what we need to live every day. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're worn out. Because you believe that God helps those who help themselves. And so you try as hard as you can to help yourself. And friends, that's where these solutions are wearing. And so just as I am reminds us that the only thing that God accepts is not people who try harder. It's not people who try to help themselves. So people like the tax collector who come and say, I don't know, the only way that I can come is as I am. Is as I am. So again, just live and breathe deeply in this moment. Come kneel to front if you'd like. Stand and sing. Sit, kneel, pray. Whatever you'd like. We've got the camera tripod here. So if you come up the front aisle, it might be helpful if you can kind of like connect to the side aisles or navigate your way through. Uh, if you're watching online, take this time to be prayerful online as well. Join us. Offer your heart, your soul, your spirit to God just as you are. Good? Let's sing, stand, kneel, sit, whatever you'd like. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am Yeah.
stand. And Paul and Gabrielle, if you could, and Kai, if you could lead us in just maybe one last refrain of one of the songs. And, and here's the deal, friends. We're, we're going to close the service with this song. Our prayer team would be down here to the right if you'd like someone to pray for you. Uh, feel free to, they're going to continue to sing even after the service closes. I, I will close it. Uh, but even then, feel free to come up, kneel, pray whatever you need to do. So let's uh, sing to close the service. Sing just as I am. Just as I am without one peace But that thank you that you do not help those who help themselves. But it's precisely when we finally realize we can't help ourselves that you pour out your mercy, your grace, your compassion upon us. Thank you that through your cross, we're made right with you. That through your resurrection, we're given life 
from your hand. May our lives be a sweet aroma of your kindness, mercy, and grace to others. We ask that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Again, our team is going to continue to play. Uh, Feel free to linger if you'd like. Pray if you'd like. God bless and have a wonderful day.